never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Christian identians, white nationalists, patriots, patriotic Americans. Uh, all those people who care for truth and justice, welcome to Eurofolk Radio. This is the Restoration Hour, as the intro just informed you all. Uh, had a bit of a snafu, uh, my guest for this evening, John from Indiana. Uh, he was supposed to make himself available at 7 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock Chicago time. But I forgot, and probably he did too, that Indiana is Easter time, even though he's only 30 miles from Chicago. <laughs> uh, he's probably still out shopping or whatever. And because uh, uh, he probably forgot that uh, his time zone is an hour earlier than mine. And I forgot as well. So anyway, I'm hoping that uh, he will. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, I'm hoping that he will get back soon and call in. And we were just discussing Bela Lugosi with a star of David around his neck. I speculate that Bela is a, a Jew. And yeah, thanks for Swamp, uh, Swamp Fox uh, providing a picture of Bela Lugosi wearing a um, star of David around his neck, or at least a six-pointed star. And yeah, Bela uh, from the... Uh, it's a Hungarian name and common European, East European name is Bela. Of course, that's based on Bel, the uh, Beelzebub, and etc. You know, a lot of the, even the white European, Eastern and Western Europeans have names uh, that are pagan in origin because the ten northern tribes rebelled against Yahweh and adopted pa- paganism almost full throttle. And that's why Yahweh expelled them into the wilderness of Europe. So uh, while I'm waiting for John to uh, call in, I told him, I sent him a Skype message to text me when he gets back in. I've uh, gotten an article on the Septuagint. We were supposed to talk about what he calls Obri, O-B-R-Y, which is an analysis of the Hebrew letters, syllables, and uh, words. It's a very, very deep word study analysis of the Hebrew. And I'm pretty sure he bases it on, it has to be the Masoretic text. And we featured uh, one of his videos on the front page of Eurofolk Radio about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, about uh, his word studies and uh, letter studies, etc. The Paleo-Hebrew language is very different from the Masoretic Hebrew. And here again we see that the mainstream Judeo-Christian churches and theologians 
including the King James Version of the Bible, rely heavily on the Masoretic Text. It's very important to understand it's the Masoretic Text, which is the rabbinical text, what the rabbi Jews have preserved of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, I, when I asked Pastor Steve about this, uh, I think live on the air, at, at least a couple of times, and talked to him about it frequently you know, off the air. So given the fact that the Masoretic text is so poor, and especially with the modern so-called block Hebrew letters, which have replaced the Paleo-Hebrew, and with the jots and tittles inserted by the Masoretes in various words, how can you possibly trust the Masoretic text? And his answer was, well, you really can't. But the, as you get more and more familiar with the, the Masoretic text, because that's the only, uh, I asked him first, is this the only uh, surviving Hebrew text that we have, and he said, yeah, pretty much, because all of the other ancient Paleo-Hebrew documents are very, very fragmentary, I think with the possible exception of the book of Isaiah contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the only book that I'm aware of that is intact from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's in Paleo-Hebrew. So, but, but then in addition... The Masoretic text was not compiled until about 1000 A.D. So the Masoretic text is a very, very late addition, and I guess that's the best way to put it, an addition of Hebrew for translation into our modern languages. So this presents all kinds of problems, but... I have found that even with the Masoretic text, using word, the word study method, that I was able to correct very obvious errors in, in the language of the Old Testament. And for those of you who have been listening to our series on Genesis to Revelation and the actual meanings of the Hebrew words. So far, we've only covered Genesis 1 and 2, but the actual meanings of those words must be totally understood. You cannot ignore the meanings of those words in the Hebrew and rely on the translations of the Septuagint or Masoretic or the theologians, both Jewish and Christian, who really don't do much in terms of word studies and getting the definitions of these words right. Now, very often, the only way to determine the true meaning of a Hebrew word is by doing a case-by-case comparison from one verse to the next. And we found that uh, in when Dan and I were discussing Genesis chapter 2, and we came across the passage that says that Eve was taken from Adam's rib, well, we find out that there's only one instance where the word, I th- uh, no, I can't remember, I think it was tzila, if I'm not mistaken, was the word, the Hebrew word. And that's the only instance in which that word is translated as rib. 
everywhere else the word is translated as side, as in the side of a hill, uh, the side of one's body, a side of beef, etc., etc. So why did they translate it as rib? Makes no sense. And so I think there's a more, uh, you know, esoteric, for lack of a better word, at the moment, uh, or not even hidden, but another meaning altogether uh, for that the translation of that verse that Eve was not taken out of a rib, but the reference is to Adam's blood, his DNA, that uh, for Adam, because Yahweh had breathed the breath of life into him personally in Genesis 2-7, and therefore, even though Adam was uh, a member of the white species, the Adamic species created in Genesis 1:26 and 27, nevertheless, none of those other white people from which he was taken out of were had this breath of life breathed into them directly by Yahweh, okay? So Yahweh had to make an exact duplicate or exact complement, and we found out that uh, another word that uh, translated as helpmeet, which is not a bad translation, but the true meaning of that word is complement, so that the male and female are to complement each other. And the only way they can do that is if they both have the same genetic code and both have the Holy Spirit, or Shekinah glory, in their DNA. Okay? And the life is in the blood, we are told, right? So Yahweh did something with their blood. The only real connection I can see to the ribs is that The ribs are the primary engine of blood manufacture in the human body with uh, lots of, uh, oh, what do you call them, Uh, stem cells. Stem cells which uh, can be um, used to produce all sorts of uh, different kinds of cells in the body. So the stem cells uh, become heart cells, muscle cells, uh, more blood cells. Uh, artery and venous uh, venal cells, etc., etc. So it's the stem cells that differentiate into the different organs of the body. It's interesting that even to this day, modern science, modern biology has no idea how stem cells can do this, and even more mysterious is how these stem cells know when to stop reproducing so that the lungs don't <laughs> expand out of the body, you know, explode out of the rib cage. These stem cells, mysteriously, uh, the lungs always stop where they're supposed to stop. The spleen cells always stop where they're supposed to stop. The heart cells and the muscle cells, very, very few of them actually outgrow their uh, how should I put their positioning within the human body, and this this requires extreme intelligence. This cannot simply be mechanical. Scientists have no idea what causes these stem cells to stop reproducing when the shape of the organ and the size of the organ have been obtained. So, I mean, biochemistry and biology have 
Yeah, even though they have made great strides in understanding the biochemistry of the body, they're still light years away from understanding how these organs achieve their shape and why they stop growing when they're supposed to stop growing, okay? And it's not a biochemical process. It's a spiritual process. I think that this organ shape uh, business is determined by Yahweh's Elohim. We're all assigned a certain number of angels, each one of us. And I'm convinced that it's these angels who, once you you have been conceived in your mother's womb, they make sure the process develops according to plan. But if if you have if your mother is a drug addict, and uh, all of these foreign substances, or if you've been your mother has just recently received a vaccine. <laughs> And uh, she has all these poisons floating around in her body. There's only so much the angels can do if there's no, quote-unquote, dust of the ground, atoms, the proper atoms and molecules in the womb. There's only so much these angels can do. So uh, this is the way it works. It's a combined spiritual, physical uh, life, uh, the, the continuum of life from the spiritual element and the physical element are always working together, always working together. So, but uh, the the angels only have so much to work with, and that's why you have uh, genetic diseases. For example, in the case of the Jews, who have more birth defects and uh, strange diseases (laughs) than any other group, Well, it's because their DNA is defective. Their DNA is defective, and it's probably uh, their their body patterns, their body shapes, etc., might be guided by uh, Nephilim instead of angels, right? So maybe that's why so many Jews are deformed. Some of them very radically deformed. Okay. All right, Swamp Fox says, Bella Lugosi and uh, Vilma, his sister, were raised in a Roman Catholic family. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so in any case, we are dealing with a a situation in which the the so-called science behind uh, human biology is still tremendously lacking, and there's only so much they, they know about why our bodies you know there's obviously you know they can they can even film a zygote differentiating you know and, and growing and separating but they have no idea what causes it. it's not just a chemical process it's not just a biological process there is definitely instruction because our dna is a transceiver it receives instruction it, it's a genetic code like a just a, a computer code where does the code come from? Where does this intelligence come from that's directing the development of the baby? Scientists have no idea. They try to reduce it to mere biological processes or chemical or even merely physical processes, but that obviously does not tell the whole story. And uh, even you know, the anti-evolutionists within the scientific community, many of them who are Nobel Prize winners all say 
that uh, there is a an intelligence directing all of this because none of this can possibly happen by accident, which is, of course, the evolutionary view. But uh, the, the opinions of these uh, contrarian Nobel Prize winners is never publicized in mainstream press. It, it's, not, it's not taught in the secular schools. It's not even taught in religious schools. They should teach this stuff, uh, namely quantum mechanics, which uh, has proven beyond any shadow of doubt that the mechanism which causes uh, molecules and atoms and uh, the physical world to come into being is transcendent, comes from another reality. That reality has to be spiritual. That reality has to be conscious. It has to be intelligent. Numerous books on quantum mechanics, even by uh, materialists, have admitted that quantum mechanics leaves no room for a purely materialistic explanation of reality. Even the the secular ones who don't want to believe that there's a God or an intelligence behind this physical world have admitted it. They simply have admitted it. But you'll never hear about this in academia. Absolutely never hear about it. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, there used to be a lot of them. I remember, I guess you just have to watch the movie. (laughs) Because I remember seeing that in a movie where Bela Lugosi was wearing a Star of David when he was uh, hypnotizing somebody. Okay. So anyway, but of course, what is Hollywood for? Except to hypnotize us. So uh, in order, uh, by way of introduction, I was going to uh, look up uh, the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Now, I've done shows on this previously, but today I found a an article from the world of Orthodoxy, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church, and their view of the Septuagint versus the Masoretic. And for those of us in Christian identity, the, the vast majority of us that have, uh, and I think if not, it's almost 100%, have stated that the Septuagint is far superior to the Masoretic text because the Septuagint, number one, was written by actual Judahites. They were uh, commissioned by Ptolemy Philadelphus around 250 BC to translate from the ancient Hebrew into the Greek. That's number one. So it's and it so it predates the Masoretic text by at least twelve hundred years. Not that the Hebrew text used by the Masoretics is uh, is that that uh, recent. They obviously the Jews, the Pharisees of the, the day, from the days of Christ obviously kept the Hebrew scriptures in their possession and the Christians didn't know because because of Herod. Herod was an Edomite and he made sure that the Judahites no longer had access to their own <laughs> Hebrew scriptures and it was given to the Pharisees by default. 
So it's the Pharisees who preserved the original Hebrew scriptures and then doctored them, tampered with them very, very much, tampered with them, so that uh, a lot of it is just not understandable. And these are the questions that I posed to Pastor Steve early on because he, he was conversant in Hebrew. He could read it, write it, and speak it. So having learned all of that while he was in prison, he would have certainly learned of errors of translation within, or even errors of the original, or what's left of the original Hebrew scriptures. He would have realized, hey, there's problems here, and there's problems there. But those can be resolved by detailed word studies. Okay, so... The general rule that I have gone by using the word study method is that whenever a verse really jumps out at me as not corresponding with other verses, you know, where a translation of a particular word like tzila, uh, where, where only one verse has rib and all the others have side, then you have to look at that verse. Is the word rib really justified in this verse? And I have concluded it is not. And so these are the types of things. And a lot of the, a lot of the mistranslations are deliberate and they're endemic, which means they come about very, very frequently. Now, these are the ones that are actually the easiest to diagnose, such as the false translation of YHWH, Yahweh, into L-O-R-D, Lord. There's absolutely no excuse for making that change. Because the name of Yahweh does not equal Lord, which simply means that the Lord is a title. And in fact, Lord can be translated from the Hebrew word Baal. So are we equating Yahweh and Baal? I don't think we want to do that. Okay, again, Bela. Bel. So we're we're left at a, a juncture where if you really want to have a good translation of the scriptures, you have to take the Masoretic text with a tremendous amount of salt. But then you also use the Septuagint as a you know, cross-reference. The number two uh, thing in favor of the Septuagint is there's more of it. There's a, a lot more verses in the Septuagint, which gives more information and you have to ask the question, well, why, how much have the Masoretes actually deleted from the original scriptures? And the answer is a lot, an awful lot. So this is a, but this is the type of study you have to do to get the Bible right, especially in the early chapters, because if there's a, a, a word that's mistranslated early on, it's likely to be mistranslated the rest of the way. So this is an absolute necessity in studying the original Hebrew, the Paleo-Hebrew. And this is what John from Indiana has done. He's in the process of doing it. And so uh, he's my scheduled guest tonight, but I fear that uh, because of the time differential between Eastern time and Central time, uh, we, uh, we got our signals crossed. So I'm hoping he'll call in. 
you know, within the next half hour or so. In any case, I'm going to access this website. I, put, I think I put the link in already, but I'll do it again just in case because uh, a lot of people have entered the chat room already and I don't want to have to scroll up to find it. So I'm going to post it in the chat room again. Orthochristian.com And as I said, this is an Orthodox, probably Greek Orthodox, could be Russian Orthodox, because they have just, well, they don't have as many denominations as the Western Christianity does, but they have enough. And they infight among themselves just as much as Western Christianity does. In fact, uh, the Orthodox Church throughout its history has even had wars among themselves over theological issues such as iconography. Many of the emperors of the Eastern Orthodox Empire, Byzantium, uh, were opposed to iconography and uh, you know, would make war against those who favored the icons. And then after that king was the emperor was deposed, a pro-icon emperor took took power and uh, restored the icons again. So even in the in Byzantium, there's all kinds of struggle and strife over this this theology and that theology. So, wow, it's amazing that Christianity has managed to survive all this time. Well, let's get started here. The Septuagint versus the Masoretic Text by Father John Whiteford. Boy, does he sound like a, a Caucasian, a non-Greek Caucasian. <laughs> but, of course, there are a lot of... Uh, Western Christians have converted to Orthodoxy, so that that might be the case with Mr. Whiteford. The Septuagint versus the Masoretic Text. Does the Orthodox Church teach that the Septuagint is more reliable than the Hebrew text of the Old Testament? If so, why? Father John Whiteford talks about the Bible according to the 70. and The reason why it's 70, LXX, is because the story is that 70 Judahite scribes, there might have been some Benjamites there, but they were all of the house of Judah because the house of the northern house of Israel had already been deported well before, uh, about 500 years before this commission was uh, given by uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus. So it was only Judahites and Benjamites who lived in Palestine at that time. And so these Judahites, the 70 Judahites, were the ones who were commissioned to make this translation of the Old Testament. And he says, in the encyclical of the Eastern Patriarchs of 1848, which was a reply to the epistle of Pope Pius IX to the Easterns, the patriarchs of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, along with the other assembled bishops, stated, quote, Our church holds the infallible and genuine deposit of the Holy Scriptures, of the Old Testament a true and perfect version, of the new the divine original itself, unquote. And so we have always held that the Septuagint is the authoritative version of the Old Testament, and I would agree wholeheartedly with this statement, although... The translations of the Septuagint from the Greek into the English are also suspect. They tend to be universalistic, 
and sometimes they they favor the uh, the the Masoretic translation or copy the Masoretic translation into English. So, in other words, the modern Septuagint in English and probably other European languages as well has its problems as well. Let's continue. Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev notes, quote, The basis of the Old Testament text in the Orthodox tradition is the Septuagint, a Greek translation by the 70 interpreters made in the 3rd to 2nd centuries B.C. Now here they say B.C.E. Why do they do that? That's about a Judaism. It's the Jews who changed it from B.C., meaning before Christ, to before the Common Era. How could they do this? Are they ignorant? Anyway, made in the 3rd to 2nd centuries before Christ for the Alexandrian Hebrews and the Jewish diaspora. No, it wasn't a Jew, a Judahite diaspora. The authority of the Septuagint is based on three factors. First of all, Though the Greek text is not the original language of the Old Testament books, the Septuagint does reflect the state of the original text as it would have been found in the 3rd to 2nd centuries B.C., not B.C.E. While the current Hebrew text of the Bible, which is called the Masoretic, was edited up until the 8th century A.D., second, some of the citations taken from the Old Testament and found in the New mainly use the Septuagint text. And I have found it to be generally true, if not 100% true, that quotations of the Old Testament found in the New Testament almost invariably come from the Septuagint. Well, they have to, because the Masoretic did not yet exist unless they had access to the Hebrew Scriptures directly. That's the only way they could have come from the original Hebrew Scriptures. And they did have, whether they had access to what we today know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, we don't know. They probably did, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were probably just part of many scrolls that were still available. But we also know that Herod, while he was... uh, dictator, <laughs> dictator over Judah and Benjamin and the uh, place there by the Romans. He did everything he could to destroy the genealogical records of Judah because he knew that he was not a Judahite or an Israelite. And it also stands to reason that the the Pharisees who took the place of the Judahite scribes, would have gained, uh, gained possession of those Hebrew scriptures. Okay, And they obviously took them with them in order to create the Masoretic text. All right, so let's continue. So, yeah, there's no doubt that the New Testament references to the Old Testament are exclusively in or from the Septuagint, with the possible exception of records, uh, Hebrew records they might have had in their possession in those days. Uh, we have no idea, uh, with the possible exception of what's contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they might have had in their possession 
regarding the original Hebrew. Okay, let's continue. Second, some of the citations taken from the Old Testament found in the New mainly use the Septuagint text. Third, the Septuagint was used by both the Greek fathers of the church and Orthodox liturgical services. In other words, this text became part of the Orthodox church tradition. It was not just the Greek fathers, but the, uh, you know, the, the Western church fathers as well. Taking into account the three factors enumerated above, St. Philaret of Moscow considers it possible to maintain that, quote, in the orthodox teaching of the Holy Scripture, it is necessary to attribute a dogmatic merit to the translation of the 70, in some cases placing it on equal level with the original and even elevating it above the Hebrew text, whatever Hebrew text is available. You cannot say that the Masoretic text is authoritative, because we know it's been tampered with, as is generally accepted in the most recent editions, Orthodox Christianity, Volume 2, Doctrine and Teaching of the Orthodox Church, published New York, St. Vladimir Seminary Press, 2012. And in the above quote, I think there may be a translation problem, though I don't have the Russian text, and my Russian would probably be too limited to tell for sure by myself. But when it says some of the citations taken from the Old Testament and found in New mainly use the Septuagint text, unquote, it is awkwardly worded enough for me to guess that the Metropolitan Hilarion meant to say that most, not just some, of the quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament are based on the Septuagint because, as a matter of fact, this is true. It's not just a suggestion, it's a fact. So uh, certainly in the Orthodox Church, in the Orthodox Church, there can be no other source of language for their Bible. It has to be the Septuagint. It absolutely has to be. Okay? And uh, as a perfect, uh, uh, Swamp Fox says, the survival of Hebrew Gospels with Miles Jones... For hundreds of years, the Gospels were rumored to be originally penned in Greek. That rumor is about to be quiet. Yes, there are. Well, it's obvious. Paul knew Hebrew. Probably all of the apostles knew Hebrew. Obviously, Yahshua knew Hebrew. And uh, his statement continues, New evidence is proving that the Gospels were originally written in Hebrew and contrary to popular opinion were never lost, but they were hidden. Actually, they were hidden somewhere in India. (laughs) In fact, they were hidden for centuries by an underground movement of the Torah-observant Christians whose story is now coming to light. Survival of the Hebrew Gospels with Miles Jones and Michael Rood explains why the Greek language cannot articulate Hebrew concepts and how this misinterpretation has limited and twisted our understanding of Yeshua Messiah. That's good, and that is basically correct. However, Pastor Steve has been arguing numerous times that uh, the Gospels were written in Hebrew. (laughs) Okay, so this is... uh, it's not new information from our perspective, but uh, the vast majority of Judeo-Christians, for them, this would be new. So thank you for that input, Swamp Fox. That's very good. Uh, so let's continue. Uh, so, again, we in identity are ahead of the game. All right, so uh, now, but just to g- give you a presentation, uh, a hint of what's wrong with the Orthodox Church, it is just as universalistic 
as the Roman Catholic Church. Just look in the right-hand column. There are huge prospects for the Orthodox mission in Papua New Guinea. So you have this white Orthodox priest surrounded by, well, what are they? Negroes? I don't know what they are. So uh, they're not the covenant people. So how could they have the original scriptures and not realize that the covenant people are a genetic strain and that the covenants were made only with the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You have the scriptures. Why don't you follow them, Father? <laughs> Father Seraphim Slobod... Slobod... Oh, boy. Slobodskoy. Oh, I like that name. Slobodskoy. In his classic catechetical text. <laughs> when you deal with Greek Orthodoxy, you are dealing with some hard-to-pronounce words, even though they're in English. But Slobodsky is not an English name. Quote, it is clear why the church prefers the Septuagint and Peshitta translations, that's uh, Peshitta is the Aramaic, from the Aramaic, translations for the authoritative text of the Old Testament, and principally the first, for the Septuagint text was produced under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the concerted effort of the Old Testament church. Now, obviously these people haven't heard about the original Hebrew that has not been tampered with by the Masoretes. Okay, so that's a tremendous discovery, and uh, I'm sure Pastor Steve uh, would be, I should print uh, print out all of that uh, work by Michael Rood and send it to him. He would be very much appreciative of that. So let's continue. There was a time when many Protestant scholars assumed that the Septuagint was an often loose translation of the Hebrew text, and that when it differed from the Masoretic text, it was due to changes made by the translators. However, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now know that the Septuagint is based on a different and older Hebrew text than the Masoretic text. Okay, so this would be the original Hebrew, and quite possibly... The New Hebrew New Testament that has just been discovered, and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, I took a brief look at uh, Michael Rood's uh, interview with the guy who discovered I think it was all the way in India where these texts were preserved. Anyway, the Hebrew text that has served as the basis for most translations of the Old Testament into English is based almost entirely on the Leningrad Codex which dates from 10,008 A.D. Hey, they used the correct terminology, A.D. In comparison to the textual evidence that we have for the New Testament Greek, this is a very late manuscript. It's an example of the Masoretic recension, which is usually dated to have been shaped between the 6th and 10th centuries A.D., this is well after the Septuagint was translated, 3rd century before Christ. The Peshitta, 1st and 2nd centuries A.D., or the Latin Vulgate, 4th century A.D. I would place no faith in the Latin Vulgate at all. Anyway, according to Christian tradition, the non-Christian Judahites began making change. Okay, now wait a minute. Now maybe he's correct here. He says Jews. Uh, yeah, in this case it is Jews. Edomite Jews we're talking about here. According to Christian tradition, the non-Christian Jews, 
And there were there was such a thing as non-Christian Judahites, but they were Judahites, not Edomites. But they're talking about the Jews we know today who are Edomites. Began making changes in the Old Testament text to undercut the Christian use of Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. In any case, the Hebrew text that we now have, there, there's no way a Judahite would bother with anything like that. Only the Edomite Jews would have any interest in, in doctoring the text. Okay. The Septuagint and Peshitta texts were preserved within the church, and so the church believes that the text of the Old Testament has been authoritatively preserved in these textual traditions, and I would have to concur with these statements. However, now since the uh, original Hebrew Gospels have been discovered, now we have another basis of comparison. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're definitely on a journey here. (laughs) This journey won't end until the second coming, all right? But in the meantime, we have to get as as correct as possible, and that's the purpose of Christian identity. And let's continue. Furthermore, it is clear that the text that Christ and the apostles used most closely matches the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. And we have reported on this numerous times. I had just never quoted from an Orthodox theologian before. It never occurred to me that they used the Septuagint. Duh, duh. I should have have realized that. Anyway, uh, for example, in Acts 7.43, the proto-martyr, Stephen, uh, so you can see that Orthodoxy has its different terminology, proto-martyr. Why proto-martyr? Well, I guess he was the first martyr. Maybe that's what they mean by proto-martyr. The proto-martyr Stephen quotes from the book of Amos as follows, Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them. Remphan is a representative of a fallen angel, folks. Anyway, that's the KJV. But when you look this quote up in Amos 5.26 in most translations, you will find that the quotation doesn't match. And so here it is from, uh, is he quoting Acts again? Or Amos 5.26? The article is unclear, but apparently it is Acts 7.43. You also carried Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. And that's NKJV. So it it references two completely different names. Okay. So in the KJV you have Moloch and Remphan. In the NKJV you have Sikuth and Kion. Compare the above with the Latin Vulgate. But you carried a tabernacle for your Moloch and the image of your idols, the star of your God, which you made to yourself. So it doesn't even mention the second God. This is from the Douay-Rheims translation of the Vulgate. Now, I do have a Douay-Rheims in my library. I don't consult it too often. When I do consult it, it's to find out how different, (laughs) how, how the Catholics doctored the text. All right. Back to this article. And then with the Septuagint, quote, Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god Remphan, or as it says Rephan, 
R-A-E instead of R-E-M. The, the images of them which ye made for yourselves. Sir Lancelot Brenton translation of the Septuagint. So also, there are several sections of the Hebrew text that are simply unreadable without keeping one eye on the Hebrew text and one eye on the Septuagint. And I would agree with that statement. Because the Masoretic has been so horribly doctored. For example, if you look at the footnotes for the book of Habakkuk in the NRSV, uh, NRSV, don't know what version that is, uh, maybe New Readers, I don't know. Anyway, there are five places in which it states that the Hebrew text is uncertain, and three times in which they state that they are simply translating from the Septuagint, Peshitta, and or the Vulgate, because the Hebrew text is so unclear. Thank you very much. This shows that the Masoretic is a very, very bad source for translation. Another example of clearly corrupt reading in the Masoretic text is 1 Samuel 14.41, which reads as follows, quote, Therefore Saul said unto, well, yeah, the Lord, of course, the, the change from Yahweh to Lord is Masoretic, but the last time I asked Pastor Steve about this, he said, yeah, well, the Greek, I mean, the Hebrew of the Masoretic does have Yahweh. It does have the Tetragrammaton, but when it's translated, it's translated as Lord instead of Yahweh. There's no reason to translate it. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give Thummim. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Several modern translations correct this clearly erroneous text based on the Septuagint and Vulgate to read. Okay, yeah, this really doesn't make any sense. Give Thummim, and Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So what does that have to do with giving Thummim? Doesn't make any sense. So let's read their, their version. Therefore Saul said, <laughs> Okay, so they, they translate Yahweh into Lord. Come on! But that's what they do. O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Okay, so you can see that the Masoretic text has at least an entire sentence missing. <laughs> an entire sentence missing. Still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay, because it says, if if we're talking about guilt, if the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God, give Urim. Okay, if the guilt is in us, me and my son, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Well, if the word is escaped, then they escape punishment. It still doesn't make any sense. Okay? So if they're guilty, why do they escape? doesn't make any sense. Anyway, let's continue. 
The Masoretic text simply makes no sense. Well, neither does the Septuagint or Vulgate. And obviously, at some point, a scribe skipped an entire line or two of the text. This is obvious because of the reference to the Urim and Thummim, which were two objects used by the priests of the Old Testament for discerning the will of God on matters such as that described in 1 Samuel 14. Another example is the text quoted in Hebrews 1.6, And let the angels of God worship him, which is nowhere to be found in the Masoretic text, but is found in both the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew text in Deuteronomy 32.43. So, it's pretty obvious that Paul was quoting from either the Septuagint or whatever Hebrew text was available at that time. It should be pointed out that the Hebrew text should not be ignored entirely. Well, of course, I mean, you always have to check whatever sources you have, particularly when the Septuagint and the Hebrew text are in agreement. We will better understand the Septuagint as a translation if we compare it with the Hebrew text than that it is clearly a translation of. Okay, so it's very clear at this point from other people who have, like Pastor Harrell, who died last year, his work in comparing the Septuagint and the Masoretic was entirely in favor of the Septuagint, with rare exceptions. So there are some exceptions, but in general, I could say this, the Septuagint is always better. And at at many points, the Septuagint and Masoretic agree. But where they disagree, the Septuagint is clearly better. Let's continue. It is extremely helpful to understand the range of meaning of the original Hebrew text. Yes, (laughs) absolutely, when we clearly have it. For example, it is helpful to know that Hebrew does not have a past or future tense, but only a perfect and imperfect tense. And so just because an English translation is clearly in either the past, present, or future tense, it does not necessarily mean that this is what is implied by the Hebrew original. One often encounters the use of the prophetic perfect, where a prophecy of something that has not yet come to pass is in the perfect tense and often translated in the past tense. Right? With his stripes we were healed. Isaiah 53, 5. When from the perspective of the prophet, he was speaking of something in the future. Yeah, and that's, we, in studying the Hebrew scriptures, have come to realize this, that many prophecies are stated as if they were past tense, but they're not. So, But the translators of both the Septuagint and the Masoretic have realized this so that they're not often in error when it regards to prophecy. But however, you could miss a lot of prophecies. New Revised Standard Version. That's probably it. Thank you. Thank you, Swamp Fox. So, So in general, scholars if they're not familiar with the errors that are contained in the Masoretic text, they are not familiar with this past, the the fact that Hebrew only has perfect and imperfect tenses, they will translate it and falsely assume it's past tense when actually it's a prophetic tense. Okay? Prophetic tense is probably even a better way of putting it. 
So let's continue. And that, that the Septuagint is the most authoritative text in the Orthodox Church is something that is confirmed in just about any Orthodox catechetical text you could consult. The Septuagint text is the text that the Church has preserved. The Masoretic text is a text that has not been preserved by the Church, and so while it is worthy of study and comparison, it is not equally trustworthy. We have the promise that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, John 16.13. Okay, why are you universalists? Why don't you teach the covenant message? And so can indeed affirm that our church holds the infallible and genuine deposit of the Holy Scriptures. Yes, you have that, but you still interpret it in a universalistic way. Anyway, so there's another article embedded here. And by the way, there are a lot of uh, blogs, uh, internet websites that are done by independent Orthodox priests who are obviously affiliated with the Orthodox Church, but have their own blogs and their own opinions. And that's encouraging to see. And, and uh, in fact, I've corresponded with some of these who have heard about Christian identity and our racially segregated message, and they agree that our perspective is the correct one. And that leaving the Orthodox Church because it, uh, it teaches universalism or practices it, if it doesn't teach it, that, uh, yeah, they see a problem there. So even within the Orthodox Church, there are priests who agree with our position on the covenant message. So I'm going to click on the link at the bottom here of the article I've been referencing. The theorthodoxlife.wordpress.com Masoretic text versus original Hebrew. March 12, 2012. It's interesting, these articles are very recent. Well, at least comparatively speaking. <laughs> Ten years old. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let me get a swig of water here real quick. I used to believe the Masoretic text was a perfect copy of the original Old Testament. I used to believe that the Masoretic text was how God divinely preserved the Hebrew scriptures throughout the ages. I was wrong. The oldest copies of the Masoretic text only date back to the 10th century, nearly 1,000 years after the time of Christ. And these texts differ from the originals in many specific ways. Let me qualify what he just said here. They do contain the original Hebrew, but there have been deletions and additions, especially with the vowel points, lots of additions. And if John uh, joins us, he can explain more about that. Anyway, and these texts differ from the originals in many specific ways. The Masoretic text is named after the Masoretes, who were scribes and Torah scholars who worked in the Middle East between the 7th and 11th centuries. They were also Edomite Jews. And they were Talmudic scholars, not Torah scholars. The texts they received and the edits they provided ensured that the modern Jewish texts would manifest a notable departure from the original Hebrew scriptures. 
Let me repeat this statement because this is 100% accurate what he just said here. The text they received and the edits they provided ensured that the modern Jewish texts would manifest a notable departure from the original Hebrew scriptures. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Would that most modern Christians knew this. And again, this is Russian Orthodox. He's a Russian Orthodox here. Because uh, this article, an older version of this article is available at the Russian Faith website. Continuing. <coughs> Excuse me. Historical research reveals five significant ways in which the Masoretic text is different from the original Old Testament. One, the Masoretes admitted that they received corrupted texts to begin with. Well, because they only compiled them from the 6th century to the 10th century, what they received was Pharisaic (laughs) documents, which they might have been recopied several times. So yeah, they were already corrupted. Number two, the Masoretic text is written with a radically different alphabet than the original, not Paleo-Hebrew. It's the so-called Block Hebrew, which the Masoretes either invented themselves or which they received from the Pharisees. Number three, the Masoretes added vowel points which did not exist in the original. Number four, the Masoretic text excluded several books from the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, the Apocrypha. Number five, the Masoretic text includes changes to prophecy and doctrine. Very good. Very good. And in every one of these changes, the Septuagint is is preferable because these changes are not so evident or not deliberate in the Septuagint. However, as we just pointed out, Brenton who translated the Septuagint into English, has made all kinds of universalistic errors following the tradition of the Masoretic. So, wow, it's really hard to get a really good translation. But Pastor Steve has done yeoman's work in translating from the Masoretic, and you know we did several shows uh, comparing the, the Septuagint books versus the Masoretic books. And he has taken the Septuagint translations or uh, documents into consideration for his translation. And knowing how the Masoretes have doctored the Old Testament, he has made significant progress in a correct translation from whatever is existing of the original Hebrew. Now, it would be very interesting for Steve to compare his translation with the new translation, or not, not newly discovered translation of the original Hebrew New Testament. That would be great for him to be able to compare. All right, let's continue. We will consider each point in turn. Receiving corrupted texts. Many people believe that the ancient Hebrew text of Scripture was divinely preserved for many centuries and was ultimately recorded in what we now call the Masoretic text. Of course, that's what the Jews assert. But what did the Masoretes themselves believe? Did they believe they were perfectly preserving the ancient text? Did they even think they had received a perfect text to begin with? 
History says no. And of course, we in identity know that the Pharisees had no interest in preserving a, an undoctored Hebrew text because they were deliberately creating a Talmud, that is, commentaries on the Torah. And that's what the Masoretic text actually is, with additions and deletions. History says no. Scribal emendations, tikkun soferim. Early rabbinic sources from around 200 A.D. mention several passages of scripture in which the conclusion is inevitable that the ancient reading must have differed from that of the present text. Rabbi Simon ben Patsi, 3rd century, calls these readings emendations of the scribes. Yeah, the scribes and Pharisees. Tikkuna Soferim Midrash Genesis Rabbah. Assuming that the scribes actually made the changes. Well, the scribes at some point did, yes. This view, whether Masoretic or Pharisaic, doesn't matter. This view was adopted by the later Midrash and by the majority of Masoretes. So they knew they were receiving a corrupted text already. In other words, the Masoretes themselves felt they had received a partly corrupted text. A stream cannot rise higher than its source. If the texts they started with were corrupted, then even a perfect transmission of those texts would only serve to preserve the mistakes. Uh, Well, not mistakes. They are distortions. Even if the Masoretes demonstrated great care when copying the texts, their diligence would not bring about the correction of even one error. In addition to these intentional changes, there you go, thank you, but they're not Hebrew scribes, they're Edomite Pharisees. In addition to these intentional changes by the Edomite Pharisee scribes, there also appear to be a number of accidental changes which they allowed to creep into the Hebrew text. For example, consider Psalm 145. Hold on, I have to scroll down here. Psalm 145 is an acrostic poem. Each line of the psalm starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yet, in the Masoretic text, one of the lines is completely missing. Okay, now this is repeated here in the inset, but let me read it from the inset because there's more in there. Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm where each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In the Aleppo Codex, the first verse begins with the letter Aleph, the second with Bet, of course that's from Aleph and Bet, that's where we get our term alphabet, the third with Gimel, and so on. Verse 13 begins with the letter Mem, Mem, top highlighted letter. The 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the next verse begins with the letter O, Samak, bottom highlighted letter, the 15th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There is no verse beginning with the 14th letter, Nun. Okay, so that would let you... This is a type of scholarship that is required to find out if there is a problem with the text. So, thank you very much. Kenite scribes, yes. That's that's what they are, Kenites. Okay to use a pastor who was the uh, pastor in northwest Arkansas. Uh, He was on television. He had his own television program. 
and he would use the word Kenite instead of the word Jew, a Murray. Pastor Arnold Murray. Let's continue. In the early 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in caves near Qumran. They revealed an ancient Hebrew textual tradition which differed from the tradition preserved by the Masoretes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I had, I had some uh, fish chips with uh, corn, <laughs> corn uh, dress, uh, not dressing, but breading, and I think I got a piece of that uh, breading stuck in my throat. Anyway. Written in Hebrew, copies of Psalms 145 were found, which included the missing verse. Nice. Unfortunately, I can't read Hebrew. (laughs) But there's a commentary in this next inset. When we examine Psalm 145 from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find between the verse beginning... Okay, uh, did I just read this? No, no, it starts out with the same sentence with the mem top and the verse beginning with the O Samak bottom. So he repeats this. This verse missing from the Aleppo Codex and missing from all modern Hebrew Bibles that are copied from this Codex, but found in the Dead Sea Scroll says, The Lord is faithful in his words and holy in all his works. So Yahweh is but the Masoretes aren't. The missing verse reads, The Lord is faithful in his words and holy in all his works. This verse can be found in the Orthodox Study Bible, which relies on the Septuagint. But this verse is absent from the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the complete Jewish Bible. So it's not complete, is it? And every other translation which is based on the Masoretic text. In this particular case, it is easy to demonstrate that the Masoretic text is in error, for it is obvious that Psalm 145 was originally written as an acrostic psalm. But what are we to make of the thousands of other locations where the Masoretic text diverges from the Septuagint? If the Masoretic text could completely erase an entire verse from one of the psalms, how many other passages of Scripture have been edited? How many other verses have been erased. So, apparently we're still in the same boat. The only intact version we have is the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. So, that's the best we have, but with intense scholarship, you can correct errors, and with cross-references to the Septuagint, you can find verses that are missing or verses that have been doctored. So it is possible to reconstruct a very accurate Hebrew text. Let's continue. A radically different alphabet. If Moses were to see a copy of the Masoretic text, he wouldn't be able to read it. (laughs) Right, because he wrote in Paleo-Hebrew, not the modern block Hebrew, so-called. As discussed in this recent post, the original Old Testament scriptures were written in Paleo-Hebrew, a text closely related to the ancient Phoenician writing system and to runes and to virtually every other alphabet then in existence based on Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, because that is, in my opinion, the language spoken and written in the Garden of Eden 
and by Enoch and the other patriarchs of the, the pre-flood era. The Masoretic text is written with an alphabet which is borrowed from Assyria, Persia, around 16th, 6th to 7th century B.C. Thank you very much! It is almost 1,000 years newer than the form of writing used by Moses, David, and most of the Old Testament authors. Next, adding vowel points. For thousands of years, ancient Hebrew was only written with consonants, no vowels. Same was true of Greek. When reading these texts, they had to supply all the vowels from memory, based on oral tradition. Now, why? Why was this? Well, considering the fact that there is so much scribal copying that had to be done to preserve all these texts, leaving out the vowels was just a, 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 you know, a convenience to save a lot of work. And since the scribes themselves, the Judahite scribes, would have known the meaning of the various verses that they're talking about, that you could dispense with the vowels. But for people who came later and not knowing what, well, what is this word really? Is it, is it uh, over or aver, <laughs> right? Is it Enoch or Onoch? You know, the, well, typically you know, with a fair amount of study, you can figure it out. But the ancient Hebrew Judahite scribes would have known instantly which was the correct vowel. So the modern translators don't have that luxury that they did. But this is what uh, scholarship is all about. Okay. In Hebrew, just like modern languages, vowels can make a big difference. The change of a single vowel can radically change the meaning of a word. An example in English is the difference between slap and slip. These words have very different definitions. Yet, if our language was written without vowels, both of these words would be written SLP. Thus, the vowels are very important. The most extensive change the Masoretes brought to the Hebrew text was the addition of vowel points. Those are the jots and tittles. In an attempt to solidify for all time the quote-unquote correct readings of all the Hebrew scriptures, the Masoretes added a series of dots to the text, identifying which vowel to use in any given location. Adam Clark, an 18th century Protestant scholar, demonstrates that the vowel point system is actually a running commentary which was incorporated into the text itself, so it's systematic or endemic. In the general preface of his biblical commentary published in 1810, Clark, which is spelled C-L-A-R-K-E, writes, The Masoretes were the most extensive Jewish commentators which that nation could ever boast. The system of punctuation, probably invented by them, is a continual gloss on the law and the prophets. So, by the way you punctuate, you could change the meaning. Their vowel points and prosaic and metrical accents, etc., give every word to which they are affixed a peculiar kind of meaning, which in their simple state, multitudes of them can by no means bear. <laughs> okay, right? 
So in other words, that they had a secret code uh, of meaning of particular words which the Paleo-Hebrew cannot justify. The vowel points alone add whole conjugations to the language. This system is one of the most artificial, particular, and extensive comments ever written on the Word of God. For there is not one word in the Bible that is not the subject of particular gloss through its influence. Thank you very much, Adam Clark. Another early scholar who investigated this matter was Louis Capel, C-A-P-P-E-L, who wrote during the early 17th century. An article in the 1948 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica includes the following information regarding his research of the Masoretic text, and we quote, As a Hebrew scholar, he concluded that the vowel points and accents were not an original part of Hebrew. Some of the letters look like uh, just you know, small strokes. And even that could be easily. So if you start out with a small stroke, you can enlarge it when you copy it and make it into a completely different letter. But were inserted by the Masoretic Jews of Tiberias, not earlier than the 5th century AD, and that the primitive Hebrew characters are Aramaic, and were substituted for the more ancient at that time of the captivity, or at the time of the captivity. Well, Aramaic, is he saying that the Aramaic is uh, that radically different from the Paleo-Hebrew? I don't think it could be as bad as Block Hebrew. Anyway, the various readings in the Old Testament text and the differences between the ancient versions and the Masoretic text convinced him that the integrity of the Hebrew text as held by Protestants was untenable. So, all of those who say that the King James Version, which is based on the Masoretic text, is an inerrant version? Sorry. Ain't necessarily so. Many Protestants love the Masoretic text believing it to be a trustworthy representation of the original Hebrew text of Scripture. Yet at the same time, most Protestants reject Orthodox Church tradition as being untrustworthy. Yeah, well, believe the Jews. They believe that the Church's oral tradition could not possibly preserve truth over a long period of time. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, you can't trust oral traditions, whether Jewish or or churchianity. Therefore, the vowel points of the Masoretic text put Protestants in a precarious position. If they believe what the Masoretic vowel points, that, that the Masoretic vowel points are not trustworthy, then they call the Masoretic text itself into question. But if they believe that the Masoretic vowel points are trustworthy, then they are forced to believe that the Jews successfully preserved the vowels of Scripture for thousands of years. Through oral tradition alone until the Masoretes finally invented the vowel points hundreds of years after Christ. Either conclusion is at odds with mainstream Protestant thought. Yeah, and that's why the King James-only dogma is really horrible. Either oral tradition can be... or Okay, sorry. Either oral tradition can be trusted, or it can't. 
if it can be trusted, then there is no reason to reject the traditions of the Orthodox Church, which have been preserved for nearly 2,000 years. But if traditions are always untrustworthy, then the Masoretic vowel points are also untrustworthy and should be rejected. Okay, so here again we see that organized Judeo-Churchianity makes ridiculous claims about you know, the trustworthiness, the inerrancy of the Bible, which they should know better. And then they claim that the Septuagint or the Orthodox Church is no better when it clearly is better. Next heading, excluding books of scripture from the Old Testament. The Masoretic text promotes a canon of the Old Testament which is significantly shorter than the canon represented by the Septuagint. Meanwhile, Orthodox Christians and Catholics have Bibles which incorporate the canon of the Septuagint. The books of Scripture found in the Septuagint, but not found in the Masoretic text, are commonly called either the Deuterocanon or the, oh my, here's, uh, let me see if I can work this one out, Anag, <laughs> Anagignoscomena, Anagignoscomena. While it is outside the scope of this article to perform an in-depth study of the canon of Scripture and Anagignoscomena <laughs> and Deuterocanon, a few points relevant to the Masoretic text should be made clear. Quote, oh, I'm sorry, bullet point. With the exception of two books, the Deuterocanon was originally written in Hebrew. Next, in three places, the Talmud explicitly refers to the book of Sirach as Scripture. Okay, well, that's an admission. Uh, but I think that is contained in the original King James Version, if I'm not mistaken. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, a feast which originates, well, it wasn't, I guess it was called Hanukkah in the Hebrew, a feast which originates in the book of 1 Maccabees and nowhere else in the Old Testament. Yes, he did. Next, the New Testament book of Hebrews recounts the stories of multiple Old Testament saints, including a reference to martyrs in the book of 2 Maccabees. The Book of Wisdom includes a striking prophecy of Christ, and its fulfillment is recorded in Matthew 27. Numerous findings among the Dead Sea Scrolls suggest the existence of first century Jewish communities, uh, those would be Judahite communities, which accepted many of the Deuterocanonical books as authentic scripture. Only Judahites would accept those as authentic scripture. The Edomite Jews would have uh, begrudgingly taken them along just for purposes of distorting them. But here again we see that the Judeo-Christians and the King James-only crowd would be at a loss to explain how the apocryphal books can be so full of prophecies and I would say They're scripture. They are scripture. And they don't conflict with the rest of scripture. So they would be at a loss to explain that. 
that but they make these uh, droll announcements that the apocrypha well they're not scripture they're you know they, they might be interesting reading but uh they shouldn't be in scripture well they were they were in the king james 1611 version anyway Numerous findings among the Dead Sea Scrolls suggest the existence of a first century Judahite community which accepted many of the Deuterocanonical books as authentic scripture. Many thousands of first century Christians were converts from, not from Judaism, but from Mosaism. The early church accepted the inspiration of the Deuterocanon and frequently quoted authoritatively from books such as Wisdom, Sirach, and Tobit. Tobit is my favorite book of the Apocrypha. This early Christian practice suggests that many Jews, or uh, Judahites, accepted these books even prior to their conversion to Christianity. One more bullet point. Ethiopian Judahites preserved the ancient Judahite acceptance of the Septuagint, including much of its canon of scripture. Sirach, Judith, Baruch, and Tobit are among the books included in the canon of the Ethiopian Judahites. These reasons, among others, suggest the existence of a large 1st century Judahite community which accepted the Deuterocanon as inspired scripture. Next heading, Changes to Prophecy and Doctrine. And this is really important. When compiling any given passage of scripture, the Masoretes had to choose among multiple versions of the ancient Hebrew texts. In some cases, the textual differences were relatively inconsequential. For example, two texts may differ over the spelling of a person's name. And you have that a lot between the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, in other cases, they were presented with textual variants which made a considerable impact upon doctrine or prophecy. In cases like these, were the Masoretes completely objective? Or did their anti-Christian biases influence any of their editing decisions? Of course it did. In the 2nd century AD, hundreds of years before the time of the Masoretes, Justin Martyr investigated a number of Old Testament texts in various Jewish synagogues. He ultimately concluded that the Jews who had rejected Christ had also rejected the Septuagint and were now tampering with the Hebrew scriptures themselves. Now this could include Judahites, because not all of the Judahites were willing to give up their lifestyles and accept Christ. Not all of them were, so they would have been allies of the Edomite Pharisees. And the quote is, But I am far from putting reliance in your teachers who refuse to admit that the interpretation made by the seventy elders who were with Ptolemy, king of the Egyptians, is a correct one. And they attempt to frame another. And I wish you to observe that they have altogether taken away many scriptures from the Septuagint translations, effected by those seventy elders who were with Ptolemy and by which this very man who was crucified is proved to have been set forth expressly as God and man and as being crucified and as dying, unquote, 150 A.D. Justin Martyr Dialogue with Trifo, or Trifo, T-R-Y-P-H-O, the Jew, chapter 
Verse 71. If Justin Martyr's findings are correct, oh, I agree with that statement 100%, then it is likely that the Masoretes inherited a Hebrew textual tradition which had already been corrupted with an anti-Christian bias. And, of course, Judaism today is totally anti-Christ and anti-Christian. It's amazing to me that any modern Christian gives Judaism any credit whatsoever, since it's so, so obviously anti-Christ. If Justin Martyr's findings are correct, then it is likely that the Masoretes inherited a hero uh, that had already been corrupted. And if we look at some of the most significant differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, that is precisely what we see. For example, consider the following examples or comparisons. Okay, let me see if we got, there. there's no headings to these columns. So, okay, so I guess this is the first is, is a heading. This passage in the New Testament, which is quoted beneath, next column, depends on this passage from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament to show that God had prophesied this. That's the third column. But the Masoretic text reads quite differently, and then below that is an example. So there are four columns, but instead of uh, having headings, it has descriptive, uh, I guess you could call them descriptive headings to show what comes beneath. So the first example, the four columns. The passage in the New Testament is, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, a body you have prepared for me, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 10. And that depends on this passage from the Septuagint, version of the Old Testament, which we, he quote now, Sacrifice and offering you did not will, but a body you prepared for me. So that comes from Psalm 39.7, Orthodox Study Bible, and apparently this is not in this Masoretic text. Third column, to show that God had prophesied this, the incarnation of Yahshua, obviously. But the Masoretic text, first column, reads quite differently. And it says, You desired neither sacrifice nor meal offering. You dug ears for me. Psalm 47, verse 7 complete Jewish Bible. So it's it's obvious just from this one verse alone that the Masoretes attempted and, de and deliberately removed a prophetic rendering. So the next passage is Matthew 1 verses 21 through 23 and I'll just go straight across from left to right. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this, uh, this comes from the Septuagint passage. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14, Orthodox Study Bible. And, of course, it's showing the virgin birth. But the complete Jewish Bible renders it as such. Behold, the young woman is with child, and she shall bear a son, 
and she should call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so you can clearly see that the Jewish version attempts to deny the virgin birth. Next, and again, this is Hebrews 1.6, When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. The Septuagint says, from Deuteronomy 32.43, this is Brenton's translation, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. So virtually identical. Of course, referencing the deity of Christ. The Masoretic text of Deuteronomy 32.43 says nothing about angels worshiping the Messiah. So this is the KJV, the Jewish Bible, etc. So you can see the superiority of the Septuagint. Two more, actually three more examples, and these examples really illustrate well the problem with the Masoretic text. Jesus said he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy to, quote, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, Luke 4.18. And from the Masoretic, the OT prophesied, that Messiah would, quote, preach liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind from Isaiah 61.1. This is contained in the Orthodox Study Bible version of the Septuagint. And it obviously prophesies that Yahshua would be healing the blind. But the Masoretic text of Isaiah 61.1 says nothing about the blind having their sight restored. So I guess the... Masoretes are okay with Yahshua preaching liberty, but performing miraculous healings? Not so much. Two more examples. Numerous New Testament passages mention Christ's hands and feet being pierced by crucifixion. Quote, they pierced my hands and feet, unquote, Psalm 21.17, Orthodox Study Bible prophecy of the crucifixion like a lion my hands and my feet psalm 22:17 the complete jewish bible so where they come where they come up with the words like a lion that's an obvious insertion therefore distortion one more example from the new testament And in his name shall the nations, not Gentiles, (laughs) and in his name shall the nations trust. Matthew 12, 21. So, do the non-Christian nations trust in his name? I don't think so. From the Brenton's uh, translation of the Septuagint, Isaiah 42, 4. And in his name shall the nations trust trust. Okay, and their comment here is Gentiles trusting in Jesus' name. Well, it's unclear whether this is all nations or the Israelite nations. Certainly, it can only be true of the Israelite nations. Whatever faith the non-Israelite nations or non-white nations could possibly have in Messiah, it would not be comparable to our faith in him, because we are his blood brothers.
And so from uh, the KJV, and the Isles shall wait for his law. Okay. Well, uh, that's not a horrible translation, but it doesn't say anything about trusting in the name of Yeshua. Okay? So, accuracy is best. So, the author continues in his text. These are not random, inconsequential differences between the texts. Rather, these appear to be places where the Masoretes, or their forebears, the, the Pharisees, uh, I'm amazed that he does not identify the Pharisees. But he doesn't. These appear to be places where the Masoretes had a varied selection of texts to consider, and their decisions were influenced by anti-Christian bias. Amen. Simply by choosing one Hebrew, Hebrew text over another, they were able to subvert the Incarnation, the Virgin Birth, the Deity of Christ, His healing of the blind, His crucifixion, and His salvation of the nations. Okay, so you can see that the Orthodox Church is also confused about the true meaning of the, the Hebrew Goy and the Greek, well, in this case, uh, they may have the Hebrew version of the New Testament as well, ethnos. Both of which words simply mean nation, and you have to determine from the context which nation is being talked about. The Jewish scribes were able to edit Jesus out of many important passages simply by rejecting one Hebrew text and selecting or editing another text instead. Thus, the Masoretic text has not perfectly preserved the original Hebrew text of Scripture. So they deliberately deleted a lot of references to Yahshua, but they didn't delete all of them. Because there are many places where they didn't even realize it was a prophecy of him. The Masoretes received corrupted text to begin with. They used an alphabet which was radically different from the original Hebrew. They added countless vowel points which did not exist in the original. They excluded several books from the Old Testament scriptures. And they included a number of significant changes to prophecy and doctrine. Very good. Would that our Judeo-Christian kinsmen have this understanding of the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Very important study. Very important. couple more paragraphs in this article. It would seem that the Septuagint translation is not only far more ancient than the Masoretic text, the Septuagint is far more accurate as well. It is a more faithful representation of the original Hebrew scriptures, Perhaps that is why Jesus and the Apostles frequently quoted from the Septuagint and accorded it full authority as the inspired Word of God. So, folks, I think these two articles... No, the Orthodox Church is not two-seed line. There's no doubt about it. They're, in fact, universalists. Like I said, those Orthodox priests who uh, agree with us are... Uh, renegades, and probably don't hold any position in the Orthodox Church anymore. So, Christianity has been subverted by universalism. 
And that's the problem. They have the original Septuagint. I don't see how you can miss the covenant message. You cannot. They have to ignore it. Is it for fear of the Jews? Obviously, they're not afraid of mentioning the Jews, the Masoretes, but they're not mentioning the Pharisees, which is really strange. And yes, Captain Witness, he will set all things right at the seventh trumpet. The sooner that trumpet blows, the better. So, but you can expect these kinds of universalized interpretations and translations from the entire world of orthodoxy. In fact, here in Chicago, when I first published my book, The Greatest Impersonation, I actually went to a couple of Orthodox churches just to find out if their Greek their Greek texts correspond with the King James Version. And by and large, they did. So what I realized was that the Greek Orthodox texts are just as perverted in their translations as our King James Version. So the translations are universalized and Judaized, whether they want to admit it or not. They definitely are. So this is what we're dealing with, and this is why Christian identity is so far afield from what's going on in the rest of the world. Okay, so I see we have about 20 minutes left. And I think I'm going to change subjects here because we need to get into... current times and what's going on with COVID. And I found this excellent article on Gardasil. And Gardasil is just one of the worst. But the various vaccines, so-called, that are on the market... Many of them are just as bad, but Gardasil is one of the absolute worst. When it first came out, there were reports that the girls, and this is, feminists? Where are the feminists? Your sisters are being slaughtered. But of course they approve of abortion, so what's the big deal? Yes, pharma is witchcraft. And uh, when Gardasil first came out, I had a radio show, and I did an article about how bad Gardasil is, and it was picked up by an Australian health website, and it was published on their health website, and because I had predicted that girls in Australia would probably f- pass out right after getting the vaccine, and many of them might pass out while driving home from getting the vaccine and get injured in car accidents, and that's exactly what happened in Australia because apparently it was released later in Australia than America. I had already found out 
the tragic results of that vaccine. And so they were amazed <laughs> at how I was able to predict what happened. And I said, wow, Pastor Eli James is right. This, we have the same experience here in Australia. So anyway, leading Gardasil lawyers in the country. Over $4 billion in verdicts and settlements. This sound like a safe vaccine, folks? $4 billion in verdicts and settlements. Okay, so this is apparently a lawyer's website. Baum Headland law.com is the website. So they're talking about, and you can get a free consultation. Wow, this is fantastic. If you, if you have a vaccine interest, uh, unless it's only relating to Gardasil, I'm not sure. So I'd say this is actually a very important website because they will give you a free consultation. Okay. Who knows how much the lawsuit will, <laughs> will cost, but a free consultation anyway. Gardasil lawsuit. Deaths and serious injuries linked to the HP vaccine. This is Gardasil, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. I don't know if the parents of these girls, it's usually teenage girls that are vac- uh, infected with this inoculation, but it's supposed to, uh, to prevent papillomavirus, which is something you can only contract with uh, extramarital sex or, you know, random sex. So, are the parents of these girls assuming they're going to be promiscuous? And therefore need this vaccine? Uh... What about the good old-fashioned chastity belt? <laughs> All right. The chastity belt may not be as much fun, but it's certainly not as deadly. The Gardasil vaccine manufactured by Merck & Company was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, in 2006 for use in preventing infection from only a few of the hundreds of types of human papilloma virus which is a sexually transmitted disease, folks. Since hitting the market, however, thousands of adolescents and adults have reported serious and disabling Gardasil side effects, none of which needed to be inoculated, certainly not to teenage girls. After receiving the HPV vaccine, which is worse... Gardasil was fast-tracked to the market, achieving FDA approval in six months. Oh, just like COVID, which usually takes three years. Should take a whole lot more than that. Should take up to 10 years. Even one of the principal investigators of the Gardasil clinical trials, the human testing that precedes FDA approval, said the process, quote, went too fast. It's always too fast because the vaccines never work. So there's three other articles uh, being referenced here. I'll just read the titles. 
Gardasil lawsuit claims HPV vaccine caused teen severe injuries. Baumhedlin files Merck Gardasil lawsuit on behalf of young man. Are they giving this vaccine to men now? Gardasil attorneys allege HPV vaccine caused girl to develop POTS, P-O-T-S. I don't know what that is. The clinical trials for the Gardasil HPV vaccine reveal several disturbing side effects that were not disclosed on the package insert. One, the miscarriage rate for subjects who were injected with Gardasil was 25%. The miscarriage rate for women under 30 in the U.S. is 12.5%. Is it really that high? 12.5%? I'll bet it's because of drug use. I can't imagine any of the reason why it's so high. Anyway, 125 12.5% for women under 30. Uh, on probably a horrible diet. Number two, in the Gardasil group, five babies were born with congenital abnormalities. Well, how many were in the group? That would be nice to know. There were none in the control group, the group that does not receive the treatment. Bullet point number three, 10.9% of women who took Gardasil reported reproductive and breast disorders within seven months. Parents, are you crazy? Don't you do any research? But of course, the doctors who dispense Gardasil don't tell either the parents or the victims of the potential negative effects. In the protocol, 18 placido group, that figure was 1.2% through 12 months. Now, what's protocol 18? Is that where the 18 girls in the placebo group? I don't know what that, don't know what that means. Bullet point number four. The rate of Gardasil deaths in the clinical trials was 8.5 per 10,000, nearly double the background U.S. death rate for young women ages 15 to 24. With statistics like this, oh, but COVID only kills 0.1% of of the people who supposedly contract it. So we definitely need a vaccine for that. There are more than 64,000 case reports of HPV vaccine adverse reactions in the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System database, which I think is exclusive to America. It is estimated that only 1% of serious adverse effects are actually reported to this reporting system. So, only 1%. So, it should be 640,000. 640,000. Researcher Peter C. Goethe, I think that's Swedish, in his book, Vaccines, Truth, Lies, and Controversy, noted some of the research inadequacies of the HPV vaccine clinical trials. Quote, 
It is a requirement for registration of drugs that randomized trials have been carried out where one group received the drug and the control group received placebo or nothing. This allows assessment of both the benefits and harms of drugs. I have done research on non-vaccine drugs for decades and was shocked when I learned through my work with vaccines against human papillomavirus that the regulatory requirements are much less for vaccines. Almost all the HPV vaccine trials have a control group receiving a hepatitis vaccine or a strongly immunogenic adjuvant, which makes it impossible to find out what the harms of the HPV vaccines are. In other words, the so-called control group gets some kind of vaccine as well. That's not a control group. That's not scientific. Yet we were told constantly by Big Pharma and mainstream Jew media that the, all these vaccines are properly safety tested. The hell they are. Today, the Gardasil shot has left many young women and men suffering. FDA also approved Gardasil for boys. and I didn't even know that. And it has been a living nightmare for parents whose children have experienced severe adverse reactions to the vaccine. But no, it wasn't the vaccine that did it. Maybe they had an affair they didn't know about. That the parents didn't know about. There's always an alternative. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. Most of our race is doomed because they simply are too trusting of the devil and doctors and lawyers too for that matter they still haven't learned the lesson that Eve learned in the garden don't trust Jews or fallen angels they all trusted Gardasil never suspecting the grave illnesses and disabilities that could follow next heading here Class action attorneys with proven track record against major pharmaceutical companies. All right. Uh, I need to contact some of these guys. We need to start filing lawsuits. Unfortunately, I don't have the money to file. We'd have to. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, somebody in the chat room had stated that uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black. Supreme Court Justice, admitted that he was supported throughout his career against the real Constitution and promoting an anti-constitutional movement, that he was supported by Freemasons in all his anti-constitutional endeavors. Now, whether they were Blue Lodge Masons, which means blacks, blacks have Blue Lodge Masons, or uh, regular Masons, but maybe it was both. But that is quite a stunning admission by Thurgood Marshall. Class action attorneys with proven track record against major pharmaceutical companies. The Gardasil lawyers at Baum, Headland, Ariste, and Goldman. Well, there's, a, there's at least one Jew in there, <laughs> maybe more. Represent, you know, don't put it past Jews to make money off of both sides. 
represent individuals who were harmed by the HPV vaccine. If you or a member of your family suffered an adverse reaction after a Gardasil injection, we can help. Even if you suffered from Gardasil side effects years later, you may have a claim. We are evaluating potential cases with the following HPV vaccine side effects after the Gardasil shot or shots. Now, obviously, parents should read this before having their child or children vaccinated with Gardasil or any other so-called vaccine. But peer pressure, which is true of medical personnel as well, students, general public, how dare you not wear that mask? Put your mask on. You're, you're, you're causing harm to people who do wear masks. But supposedly the mask is supposed to protect you from breathing the virus in. And especially if it dies within six feet, then you should be doubly protected. But of course they don't think that way because they're thinking by fear, emotions, not with logic. <laughs> okay, oh, all right, Swamp Fox. Blacks have Prince Hall Masons, and Blue Lodge Masons are for whites. Okay. And Captain Witness says, parents might want to teach their daughter to keep their pants on and say no, but that's not what they're taught in school. So they are, and the rest of this is obviously a, um, you know, a, a soft sell for their product, which is, but this is good. I mean, this is uh, something people should know about that there is, in fact, a, a, a lawyer group that protects people from the vaccine industry. And so the, the things that they protect people from are the vaccine side effects after Gardasil are the following, and the list is long, folks, very long. Gardasil death, neurological disorders, MS, and I would say everything that's listed here is true of all so-called vaccines because they all contain toxic substances such as mercury, aluminum, Ethylene glycol, which is engine coolant, uh, cells from aborted fetuses, monkey kidney. What, how does any of that provide immunity to a disease caused by a specific Germ. It can't. There's no way that any of those elements can provide immunity to anything. All they will do is provide a red spot <laughs> where, it, where you receive the inoculation. And down the road, because, of, because your immune system doesn't know how to deal 
with these toxic elements that should never have entered your bloodstream in the first place, your immune system really doesn't know how to deal with these. They don't belong there. They can only put be put there unnaturally via a hypodermic needle. So just purely logically, you can see that none of this vaccine hype, hypodermic hype, makes any logical or scientific sense. Movement disorders, chronic pain syndromes, and our Western nations are flooded with these conditions, and those populations that aren't as quote-unquote technologically advanced don't get these conditions at all. Of course, they have their own illnesses that they go through, like malaria and stuff. But these non-inoculated populations do not get these chronic and degenerative diseases. They do not. Interconnected, in fact, in the garden, not the garden, so, but the vaccine that um, Billy Gates, Billy Goats, was promoting in Africa and in India caused all kinds of defects in the vaccinated children to the point where the Gates vaccine, Gates himself, was kicked out of India. And many black Africans have accused the Gates Foundation of injuring black children. Of course, the Jews media says nothing about this because we know that the white race is the major target of vaccine injury and death. Interconnective tissue disorder, Gardasil arthritis, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, that's POTS. Still don't know what it means. (laughs) Gardasil autoimmune disorders, Julian Barr syndrome. How about that? That's vaccine related too. Paralysis, yep. How about, uh, oh, uh, what's it called? The disease in the 50s that so many children got. Uh, Oh, they include multiple sclerosis. Fibromyalgia. Chronic fatigue syndrome. Epilepsy. Birth defects. Stroke. So, polio. Yeah. Originally, polio was caused by toxicity. It was assumed to be caused by toxicity in the water. As a as a boy, I went swimming in Lake Michigan in the nineteen early nineteen fifties, mid uh, actually throughout the nineteen fifties. And Lake Michigan was a very polluted lake, and it was assumed that uh, the polio was gotten from the pollution in Lake Michigan. Then it was uh, figured out that it was uh, done by DDT spraying. They would have trucks going down the streets of big cities while children were playing on the sidewalks, spraying out clouds of DDT.
And then the vaccine came along. And the kids got it again. Actually, polio had been eradicated before the vaccine came along. And then when they started (laughs) giving the kids vaccines, polio just got created again. But they renamed it. They gave it a different name. But it was still polio. Folks, that's tonight's show. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you tomorrow for Bloodlines and Voice of Christian Israel. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. See you all again next time. Bye-bye.